<clears throat> I remember when I was a little boy, about eight, I had an uncle in the city of Glasgow who um, kind of liked me. I'm not just sure why, but he kind of did, because I'm sure I was a bratty eight-year-old kid. But he wasn't married, he had no children. So now and again, when he traveled a little bit, he would take me on trips to him. And that's when I made my very first trip uh, with Uncle James to what is really one of the top cities in the world, and that's the city of London. And I had been back in London many, many times as I was a teenager and in my early 20s. And I knew London very well. And London's a city in terms of history and geography and museums was an incredible place. And I would go to church in London, St. Martin's in the fields. I would hear people like John Stott preach on Sunday morning. And all of that happened in London. A couple of years ago, I read in a magazine, the magazine about the church and the gospel, that um, right now, in the city of London, which is a very secularized city, the magazine said, I don't know where they got the statistics from, but more people go through the doors of Ikea in London on a sunny morning than all of the doors of all of the churches combined. But that's what's happened to a city like London in a secularized um, world. Vancouver, we are a very secularized city also. I hear statistics like it's 2%, 3% of the people in Vancouver attend church on a sunny morning. How many people are probably in the sun run today? I say I think we get some away too. How many people would be in the sun run today? Hmm? 40,000? Okay. We live in a secularized city. We really do. The question is, I'm going to call this a post-Christian city. The question is, so how do we preach the gospel and present the claims of Jesus Christ to a post-Christian city like London or Vancouver or anywhere else? So this morning, to try and understand it a little bit, we're going to get on the church bus. I'm the driver. Is that understood? I get to drive. Okay, I'm the driver. And we're going to visit a city this morning, the city of Athens. You'll need your Bible. You'll need Acts chapter 17. So look it up so you're ready in a minute. And we're going to try and understand how do we present the gospel to a city when the day of our church culture is over. We need to understand, people, that we live in post-Christian days. The church is really a mission outpost in a post-Christian city. And this classic sermon from the Apostle Paul, Acts 17, perhaps will give us some clues about how to be missionary people to declare the gospel in a post-modern, post-Christian city. Acts chapter 17 is a long chapter. I'm going to start at verse 16 and read a little more than I normally do in a Sunday morning, but we need it for context. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, we'll come back to them in a minute, began to dispute for them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then he took him and brought him to him for meeting at the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. 
all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spend their time doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. It's kind of like Starbucks. Okay, just so you know. Um, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Man of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples made by hands. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath from everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move, have our being. As one of your poets has said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Harry and I have been privileged uh, a couple of times to be in Israel. And sometimes in Israel, the, the guides and the buses will take you on tours and will show you and they'll say that this is a piece of land that we won back in the Six-Day War. And we took the land back from the Palestinians. This is now our land. We took it back. And when they did that, what they did was they established what's called a kibbutz, which is an Israeli community. They established a kibbutz and they planted a kibbutz out in the edge of that land. In the cities, some of the kibbutz, kibbutzimas are called, um, have to make their own money. But when you go to that kind of kibbutz, that's a military kibbutz. That is barbed wire and machine guns and tanks and those kinds of things. Why? Because they took the land back and they planted an outpost, a mission post of Judaism out there. That's a kibbutz. I'd like us this morning to see that something of a background of guide to the church. The church has to think of itself as a missionary outpost in our cities. And it challenges to ask, how do we declare the message of the resurrection to our culture today? Because the day of the church culture is over. I've shared that with you a number of times, and that is critical. As a church, we believe that the, the gospel is the hope of the world to our city. We sung this morning um, about taking the glory, let the glory go to the nations. Communicating that eternal truth in a relevant, meaningful fashion is our task. How do we do that today? From this passage in Acts 17, let me give you some ideas. First of all, how do we engage with our culture? The church has has to engage with its culture in a relevant way. I think I've got a slide about that. There we go. The gospel calls us to communicate its message to the culture of our city. We have to understand that the rules of engagement between church and culture have changed. We need to recognize how people behave, what they do, why they do. And that flows from what people consciously or unconsciously believe. You see, every behavior is stimulated consciously or unconsciously by what people believe. We call that a worldview. A worldview is a group of ideas, convictions, beliefs, gathered from all over the place that shape our minds and shape our lifestyle. 
Sometimes the church goes out to attack how people behave. We protest people, uh, sorry, we protest behavior that we don't like. We disapprove of a lifestyle which we find objectionable. Can I say to you this morning, we need to ask better questions. We need to ask and understand, what is the worldview that people have that has generated and lies behind that behavior? Paul understood that. Acts 17. He talks about um, two schools of thought that he met in Athens. He talks about Stoics. The Stoics were people who really tried to live above the circumstances of life. They created people who lived with great moral earnestness and a great sense of duty. And so we use the word Stoicism today to refer to people that face the trials of life and they don't crumble. We say, boy, they're Stoic. They don't flinch. They, they try to live above the feelings and above the emotion. There's a, a poem called Invictus. And the very last lines of the last stanza say, I'm the master of my fate and I'm the captain of my soul. That's someone who says at the end of life, give me all i got coming to me, I can take it. That's Stoicism. And the opposite end, Paul encountered a group of people called the Epicureans. That's another philosophy. Now, the Epicureans saw that pleasure was the goal and the reason of life. And everything you did had to be shaped and massaged by personal pleasure. You could always make decisions that move you to be free from pain and free from strife. So it's kind of like eat, drink, and be merry, but tomorrow we die. Now, you need to understand that people live those lifestyles out of the worldview that was in them. Those two opposite worldviews shaped the culture of Athens. And so that's the starting place for Paul's understanding of the city. These two opposite forces, opposite worldviews, made people behave and live as they did. And Paul does not really attack their behavior. We need to understand in the culture of Vancouver, there's actually more than one culture. There's a whole group of subcultures that work in our city. We find people um, who are living together outside marriage. We find people in homosexual relationships. <coughs> we find people simply out for their own interests and selfishness. We find people who worship creation, the mountains and the sea, and not the create horror. We find people who live simply to enhance their own human potential who find spirituality in crystals and where abortion is permissible. Those are the worldviews. You see, in the centuries of Christendom, it may have been enough to attack this behavior as unbiblical, aberrant. But in the post-Christian cities of North America, we cannot present the gospel by first attacking behavior that we don't agree with. When we attack pe behavior that we don't like or don't agree with, people get angry. And so they ret retaliate and attack our behavior and our lifestyle. And then you know what? The fight is on. And we have been allowed to be drawn into a fight and a battleground which we will normally lose. And it's because the gospel is not ultimately about behavior. It's about a relationship with a living and personal God who changes and shapes our worldview. Changing behavior is not our job, it's God's job. So when we find people angry, we need to find, look behind that and find despair and hurt. 
when we find people who are greedy, can we look deeper? And maybe find people who are searching, but they don't really know what they're looking for. So they grasp at everything in consumerism. When we find people who are sexually active, going from one partner in one bed to another, we may find people who do not know who they really are and believe that they will find who they are in sexual relationships. You grasp me when we look behind behavior. We're starting to look at the people's world through their eyes. And that's the real pulse of a person. That's their heartbeat. Can I suggest to you this morning that that is what Jesus was able to do so well in his earthly life. That's why Jesus condemned few people. He understood the world in which they lived and the world they lived in. In the book of Chronicles, there's a little line about a group of people called the sons of Issachar. And we're only told one thing about them. only thing the Bible says about them is simply they understood the times in which they lived. They understood the times in which they lived. It says in the book of Acts about David, David served God in his own generation. And then he died. And that's what we are called to do. To serve God in our generation, in our time, in our culture. So what have we got to do with that? We have to communicate the gospel in a way, fashion, and a manner <coughs> which is relevant. I'm going to answer my next slide, I think. And I will call that a receptor culture, a receptor language. Some um, little while ago, we received some email from friends of ours we've known for many years who worked with big, Wycliffe Bible translators. And they've been working for years and years on the hard work of translating the Bible in Pakistan. They've gone to live in Pakistan. They live there. They've been raising their kids there. <laughs> Sharing the joy of seeing a translation finished was what they shared with us. People now have the Word of God in their own language. And they were so excited about that to bless this new translation in the particular dialect where they worked in Pakistan. So imagine this morning that um, Edmund and Joanna, we're going to commission you to go to Pakistan. <laughs> Get on my bus, Edmund, we're going to Pakistan. Or you're going to Japan or Korea, take your choice. We're going to go, we're going to somewhere. We're going to commission you as missionaries. And you say, what are we going to do? Well, we got, we're going to go to Pakistan, and they got, you know, I don't know how many dialects and languages or whatever. So you're going to go to language school. And if this is a language school, you also got to understand the culture that's there and how people do things, all the nuances of stuff. I learned that a little bit in this church, that language is not only about words. You got me? It's about all of the kind of the unspoken things that go on and the different ways they do things. Somebody invited me for dinner one night after I come here. And I'll tell you this, I often drink water with my dinner. But I drink water which is cold with ice cubes. Guess what they serve me? Boiling hot water. So I pick up the glass and I'm thinking, oh, did they know that's hot? <laughs> so you're off to Pakistan, Edmund and Joanna. Okay? But you're going to have to learn more than just the language. In order to reach and speak to these people, you're going to have to understand their culture, the subtleties and the practices of culture. What do you do at mealtimes? How do you eat? Where do you go? Where do you walk? And all those kinds of things. 
And when we've been in um, um, Israel a couple of times, Harry Weinberg, quickly, and the Guggerin, that um, um, Egyptian man on the street got very angry um, if women are not properly dressed. So she was at a blow that was down to her with these wrists and all those kinds of things. You keep yourself covered up. Why? Because the culture of Cairo expected that. When we understand these subtleties, we can then begin to communicate the gospel. Not just with the words. And so in Athens, in this sophisticated city, which represented the highest culture of the ancient world, notice what Paul does as he preaches. First of all, he never uses the Old Testament. Doesn't use the Old Testament. Simply, it would not have connected with them. They would have said, what's that? We don't know that. We don't understand that. He never really, at the beginning, talked about Jesus or his death. His death is a substitution for sins. You notice where he starts? He starts with their religious life. He starts with their temple to the unknown God. He starts by understanding and quoting their points about this God in whom we live and move and have our being. He starts with their geography. He starts with their understanding of spirituality. How they really have been seeking God, but they really haven't found Him. He finds things in their culture and their experience that he can compliment, that he can affirm, that he can endorse. How many times do we think about that as a starting point for evangelism? Of sharing our faith with someone we would like to see come to Christ. That is the language of what we'll call this morning receptor culture. It is the language of the group. They need to hear and understand it. Now, we kind of think we're doing okay as long as everybody speaks English. Well, we all speak English, so we guess we understand each other. But language is only a tiny fragment of communication. Vancouver has many, many subcultures. Think about that. There's the downtown street ministry. There's the university community, UBC and FSU and whatever else. There are families. There's young families and students and school kids. There's a subculture of retired people in Vancouver. There are professional people. There's people in government and subcultures even within that. In Vancouver, there's people in television, people in the arts and people in the music. And do you understand that there's a language and a culture in each of every one of these subgroups? They speak their own language. They speak their own culture. They have their own ways of doing things. All of them speak a different language. Maybe I'll use English. But there's a different language going on. That means that each group views life differently through the lens of art or music or social structures, political organization, university life, or whatever it is. And each one of these groups is an intricate culture of language and ideas, relationship priorities. Can you imagine a church that sends people out every week, trained in mission work, to speak the language of the people they're going to? That's what makes the church and the gospel biblically based, but culturally relevant. Imagine the Apostle Paul being here this morning, teaching us how to evangelize. Guess what he might say? Folks, you need to listen to the hurt and the pain in the lives and the souls of people. Slow down before you talk. Listen to what's going on in their lives. He might say this, don't preach. Don't use the Bible unless you really have to. Because most people, they don't believe in the Bible anyway. Find in a culture what you can affirm. 
what you can complement and work from there. Find out what they like to do. Find out about their music. Find out about their hobbies. Start from there. Speak their language. Which is more than words. It means really get on the wavelength. We might wonder, because we're evangelical Christians, well, when do we preach and do our sermons? Paul might say this, that comes a lot later. Long later. Reminds you of the saying of St. Francis. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. You say, isn't that sound a little strange? No. There's a precedent for doing this, and it's in the Bible. There's a strategy for this, and the Bible teaches us about it. It comes in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only. It came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God didn't say to us, get like me and come to me. God said, I will come to you. I will come to you in human form, in your skin. I will walk in your neighborhood. I will walk in your community. I will listen to your music. I will talk about what you want to talk about. I will feel your pain. I will walk in your skin. And Jesus from God came in human form. In the ultimate sense, that's God's receptor language. We call it the incarnation. I'm well aware that in what we try to do as a church, we have to find a a narrow path between two dangers. On the one hand, there's the danger of what is called syncretism, which means you become so like your audience, you have nothing to say. On the other hand, there's the danger of irrelevance, that what we say has no meaning, doesn't relate to people. It's not an easy dance. Think for the moment as you park your car and you walk to church here. Think about this neighborhood. And think to yourself, what is the receptor language? around here. Not just the language they speak. But what do they eat? What is their music like? What do they do? What do they like? Where do they have struggles? How can we speak to the heart of these people? That's not an easy dance. Final thought might help us. That as we present the gospel, there will always become points of what we'll call this morning contradiction. So we see, we've got to use language, music, ideas, art, that's in the language of the receptor culture. I hope you've got that. But even as we use the same words, if it is truly the communication of the gospel, the word of the kingdom, even although it speaks the same language and listens to the same music, it will radically call things into question. If it is true revelation from God, there will become points when it will present an involved contradiction. What this means is, initially, we can agree on a lot of stuff. You know, there are a lot of things going on in Vancouver that the church ought to say, you know what, we're with that. We can embrace that. We can encourage that. We can support that. We can get involved in that. But then, as we move further, there will come a radical U-turn. The Bible's place for that, word for that, is the word metanoia, repentance. That's what the Apostle Paul does. Their spirituality, as he sees it, may sound fine. But does it extend to the resurrection? No. Does it extend to the fact that God has set a date in history in which he will judge the world? No. 
And so there becomes a point and a moment of contradiction to confront, to present the challenge, to call the question. True conversion will always call for some contradiction in our lives. You cannot go on believing in Jesus and do exactly what you were doing. Perhaps at times our confusion is that we are sometimes hard when we should be soft. And we are soft when we should be hard. When it comes to the challenge and the contradiction of the gospel, it is not a time to be soft. This is where Jesus was hard. Jesus was soft on people when he saw them lost and like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was hard on people when they asked how to get into the kingdom and he would not, they would not let go of what was holding them back. Jesus understood the difference of being hard and soft. So as he steps into his culture, and as we step into our culture outside these doors, we need to know that there's a point of contradiction. That's why Paul says at the end of his sermon, in the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There's at least three contradictions that the gospel calls to present. Number one, the contradiction of the call to repentance. Metanoia. It's the call to change. We can listen to the music. We can talk the same language of people. But there comes a point and a moment, folks, of metanoia. Repentance. There is the radical contradiction of the cross. God has placed a cross in the heart of the world. Calls us that. Thirdly, there's the message of judgment. I had dinner with some folks on Friday night, people we knew from a previous church, and we live here in Vancouver. We had a great, we spent about three hours just catching up with news and talking about family and what we've been doing and all kinds of stuff. It was a great, great night. This was a lot of fun. They said to me, the Tom along, and um, well, they began by saying, How old are you? That I'm 67. They said, how long have you been a pastor? I said, this summer, I've been a pastor for 45 years. It's when we left Scotland, came to Canada. In September, I've been a pastor for 45 years. They asked me a really interesting question. No one's asked me this for a long time. They said to me, are you glad and happy that you became a pastor? Stop from there. I said to them, well, very honestly, I got to tell you, it's not always been easy. Because some of the aspects of being a pastor cut across the grain of my personality. It's not easy when I've carried dead babies in a coffin and put them in the grave. But some of it's not been easy. I said, I got to be really honest and tell you, I don't think it's always been easy for the churches I've pastored. Because my pastoring kind of cuts across some of the, the lines of what is normally expected. But I said, you know, when all the chips are down, I believe this is what God's called my life to. And I'm happy I did it. And they said, why? I said, for my life, there has been no greater purpose and no greater joy than when I can share the gospel and the scriptures with somebody 
And the light goes on. And they see it. And they got it. And they turn their lives around. I said, I think of back down to my diary in my mind. And this person and this person and this person and this person. And what you're doing is you're changing people's lives for here and for their eternal destiny in heaven. And there's been no greater joy in that. So that's the gospel. And we, this week when you go to your office or your school, think to yourself, can I really speak the language of these people? Can I really get into their heart and mind and understand that there's so much about what they're doing I can affirm? We're living in the same struggle. We're trying to raise kids. We're trying to make our marriages work. There's a lot that we have in common, folks, with the non-Christians. Can we be there with them and step into their world and speak a language of love and, and, and joy and peace to them? But realize we present a message of contradiction. And the ordinary and the status quo will not do if we want to do that in the 21st century church. Men and women, in this secular city of Vancouver, that calls for the very best from us. The very best. And nothing less will do. Nothing less will do. Please stand with me. Let's pray together. Come on. Father, in the times in which we live, the church culture is over. We just need to know that. So help us this week to listen to the heart of people, some of their pain, some of their struggle, some of their world. And before we object to that, maybe be like Jesus. Be soft in their heart. So we can speak the word of truth and love and hope to them. Help us, Father, this week to see beyond people's faces, see into their eyes, see their heart and realize that we have for them a message of hope, a message of joy, a message of peace. Amen. Florence says she's got a new song for us this morning. Is that right? Close up. Here we go.